0: Good morning, is this working? Okay. Well, Brad's already kind of given me an introduction, uh, but in case you came in late and you don't know who I am, uh, my name is Bill Ruth and I am one of the deacons here at Cross Point Fellowship. And uh, I have been asked to preach this morning, so uh, I will admit up front that I'm a little nervous, so Uh, I would appreciate your prayers as we go through this, and uh, so let us begin with a a prayer, please. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for loving us so richly. We thank you for the love of Jesus, and uh, uh, in these next few minutes, Lord, I pray that you would just speak uh, to our hearts. Lord, I pray that you would get me out of the way, that I would say nothing uh, uh, that is not Lord, in keeping with your will this morning, and that uh, your message would come through about service, about deacons, and uh, just ask these things in Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so uh, we're looking at the subject of service, uh, ministering, and deacons this morning, okay? And so uh, if you put this first slide up, please. Okay. We've got four uh, main scripture passages where we're going to be going today, and uh, the first one is in Acts 6, okay, so if you want to go ahead and be turning to Acts 6, but then also uh, we're going to be in Mark chapter 10, which is kind of our anchor passage, and then Philippians chapter 2, uh, the uh, the verses that Brad read initially, we're going to be going back and looking at those again, and then 1 Timothy 3, so those are going to be our primary scripture passages of the morning, okay? Since the earliest days uh, of the Christian church, there's been an appointed office uh, that we call deacon. Uh, This office was created to meet the temporal needs of uh, the believers. And so if you're in Acts 6, beginning in chapter 1, this tells how this all got started. It reads, now in these days when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the uh, The complaint by the Hellenists, that is the Greek-speaking Jews, arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. That is, distribution of food uh, and probably some other necessities of life. Okay, So we had some favoritism being shown or possibly some unintentional neglect. But anyway, something was not getting done. And the Twelve, that is the Apostles, some of the full number of the disciples, which is the church, and said, "'It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick pick out from among you seven men of good repute, that is, good reputations, full of the Spirit and of wisdom, who we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word.'" And what they said pleased the whole gathering, And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch, seven men. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. And a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. So we had these seven men selected to basically take care of serving food to the widows of the church. And because they did that job and because it freed up the apostles to be able to focus on prayer and the ministry of the word, the church flourished, okay? Many new people uh, came to Christ and the church grew, okay? This is the first account of the office of deacon in the New Testament, but if you'll notice, you didn't see the word deacon appear in the text, okay? The office of deacon was unofficially established here, all right? But, but then it became officially established. Uh, there's a couple of places where the word deacon appears twice, okay, in the New Testament. Once is in Paul's salutation to the Philippian church in the, uh, the letter to the Philippians. In verse 1-1, he says, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus to all the saints who are in Christ Jesus at Philippi, with the overseers and deacons. So he addresses the deacons, that is, officers of the church, along with the overseers, who also were called elders, okay? Again, in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 8 through 13, Paul lists the qualifications for someone who is going to be a deacon, okay? And fulfill that office in the church. We're going to go to that later. We're not going to look at that right now. So the Greek word that is translated deacon is diakonos, Uh, and if you can put up that second slide, okay, there are several words that we're going to be looking at here, and uh, uh, the first is diakonos, that's that's the word that is translated deacon, okay? Since this word deacon only appears a couple of times uh, in the New Testament, you may think that The word diakonos isn't used very often, but in fact it is, okay? It's used a lot. It's just translated in different form, okay? Uh, It's translated as servant, minister, waiter, and attendant. There's a derivative of the word uh, diakonos, diakonia, and that's translated to serve, to attend to, and to wait upon. And then there's another derivative, diakonia, and that's translated as service, attendance, and aid. It's also uh, translated as ministration. And when you go back to uh, Acts chapter six, where they, it said their, their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution, if you look at the old King James version, the word distribution is replaced with the word ministration. And guess what, that's dio- diaconia. okay? So the word actually appeared there, it just it was never translated as the word deacon, okay? So these words are all throughout the New Testament. There's also a word for slave or servant, which is doulos, okay? And doulos often appears along with uh, the word uh, deacon or diakonos, okay? And so these words are often used to characterize Jesus and his followers. The Christian ethic, that is, the set of moral values which Christians hold, was vastly different from that of the prevailing Greek and Roman cultures, One example of this is in respect to servitude. Uh, The Greeks and the Romans didn't think very much of being a servant, okay? That was very much looked down upon. Uh, Plato, in fact, said, how can a man be happy when he has to serve someone? Happiness is not equivalent to serving in, in the mind of Plato, in the mind of the Greek and Roman thinkers, okay? In contrast to this, Paul writes in 1 Timothy 3.13, he says, For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. So how did this difference come about? In the high calling of deacon, George C. Fuller states that Jesus Christ set forth a set of standards for his followers that utterly contradict the world's sinful lifestyle. And he did it by demonstrating servanthood or by deaconing. Okay, could you put up slide three? This is the quote from Fuller. I basically just kind of uh, summarized it or paraphrased it, but notice that the, the last thing he says, place high value on that word, which is deacon. It rises from the heart of the gospel. Okay? So we're going to talk about the deaconing of Jesus. Let's turn to Mark 10.32. Okay, our key passage is really going to be uh, verses 10, uh, 42 through 45, but we're going to start in verse 32 to get the context here, okay? So that you'll know kind of how, this, uh, the, how the key verses fit into the overall. And, as they were, and they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them, and they were amazed. And those who followed were afraid. And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was to happen to him. Now, I'm going to go off script here for just a second. Okay? Jesus was walking ahead of them, and they were amazed. Get that picture. Okay? They're going to want to go to Jerusalem. They're afraid. Okay? And Jesus is out in front of them. He's leading. Okay? Jesus is leading. He's leading. And so, uh, and, and they're just amazed at this. And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was going to happen to him, saying, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him, and after three days he will rise. And James and John, get this, this is rich, okay? The sons of Zebedee came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do... Uh, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, what do you want me to do for you? And they said, grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one on your left in your glory. Jesus said to them, you do not know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? He's speaking there of what he's about to go through. Okay? And they said to him, we are able. And Jesus said to them, The cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. And when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. Okay, we kind of had a little bit of discord going on here. They were angry because they felt like James and John were trying to get one-upmanship on them. Okay. And Jesus called them to himself and said to them, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever will be great among you, and in verses 42 through 45, he tells them what their priority should be. He said, whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And the word there is diakonos, like deacon, okay? And whoever would be first among you must be the slave, that's dulos, common slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, that is, he didn't come to be deaconed to, that's the word there, but to serve, to deacon, and to give his life as a ransom for many. I would do this. I would make this thing right. I'd fix it. I'd make people do this. I'd, you know, do this. And then I could enjoy all the, the good things that come along with being in charge, Okay. So Jesus, he kind of of put that on its head. He put the cultural norms upside down and he promoted selfless service to first place and demoted self-seeking leadership to last place. Jesus demonstrated the lowliest act of service in in the culture of the day. When on the night he was betrayed, he washed his disciples' feet. It's recorded in John 13. So we're going to turn to John 13 right now, okay? Please do that in your Bibles. We're going to read the first 11 verses. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world of the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. What I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, The one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but it is completely clean, and you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him, that is why he said, Not all of you are clean. In his commentary on the Gospel of John, William Barclay wrote, washing feet of guests at a feast was the office of a slave. The disciples of the rabbis were supposed to render their masters personal service, but a service like this would never have been dreamed of. Yet here we have the rabbi washing the feet of the servants. The roads of Palestine uh, were dark trails. They weren't like our roads today. And they were either dry and dusty or they were wet and muddy depending on the weather. Furthermore, a lot of animals traveled those trails, okay? Horses, donkeys, camels, so there would have been a lot of animal droppings on the trails. And people would be walking along these trails uh, either barefoot sometimes or mostly with sandals, but sandals that didn't provide very much protection against the the dirt and, and grime on the trails. So you can imagine that foot washing was a very dirty, nasty business. It was performed only by the most menial of slaves. Uh, so uh, what Jesus did was a big come down. But guess what the disciples were doing? Luke twenty-two twenty-four 24 says that on this very night, the night that Jesus was betrayed, the night that they had the Last Supper, The disciples were arguing among themselves about which of them would be the greatest. Again, here they go. It is in this context that Jesus washed their feet. And by the way, Judas Iscariot had not yet left the room, and Jesus washed the feet of his betrayer as well. Now turn to Philippians 2. This is the passage that Brad read earlier. Philippians chapter 2. And we're going to start reading in verse 3. It says, Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. We're going to come back to this, by the way, in a minute. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Jesus performed the ultimate act of condescension and service when he gave up the glory of heaven to become a man and to become obedient to the point of death. He is the King of kings and the Lord of lords, but he came to serve rather than to be served. He is the alpha deacon. So what does this mean for us? We're not going to be talking about deacons yet. We're going to be talking about all of us, okay? We are the redeemed in Christ. What does it mean for us? Because Jesus serves and ministers as the alpha deacon, he charges his followers to also serve and be servants and ministers. Look again at John 13. We'll begin reading in verse 12. So go back to John 13, where Jesus washed the disciples' feet. And we're going to start reading in verse 12, which is where we left off. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, Do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet, for I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. The example Jesus set was not just for the immediate audience, the 12. It's for all of us. It's not just limited to foot washing, okay? It's, limited. it's not limited to foot washing. It includes all kinds of service. In light of our key verse in Mark 10, 42 through 45, it relates to all kinds of service, even the lowliest of the lowly. We belong to him. We belong to Christ. He's our teacher and Lord, just as he was for the twelve. We cannot get away with relegating the mandate to only those in the appointed office of deacon. We are called, all called to perform diakonia, often referred to as ministries of mercy. The Bible says we're slaves of Christ and servants of God. 1 Corinthians 7.22 talks about the state you were when you came to Christ, and it said, "Remain in the state that you came to Christ in." If you were, if you came to Christ as a, as a slave, then you are now a freedman in Christ. If you can re- obtain your freedom, that's good. If you were free when you came to Christ, you are a slave of Christ. I think all of us can say we were free when we came to Christ. The Bible says we're slaves of Christ. First Peter two sixteen says that we are all servants of God. We have been and. Uh, 1 Corinthians 7.23 says that you have been bought with a price. So the question I have for us today is do we really believe that we're God's slaves? Do we really believe that we're Christ's slaves? Okay. Uh, The Apostle Paul believed this about himself. Uh, Often in his letters he referred to himself as the bond slave of Christ. Again, this contradicts our current culture. What are the things that are valued in the United States of America today? What are the values that we have? Uh, we hear things like individualism, autonomy, independence, self-determination. Statements that we hear are, I want to be my own person. I want to follow my heart. I want to be free to pursue my dreams. We hear these all the time. These don't sound like the statements that a person would say if they believed they were really God's slave or God's servant. Sounds like things that we would say if we were primarily thinking that we were our own God. Um, Being a slave of Christ runs 180 degrees from these. Put up slide four, please. Barclay, uh, William Barclay, who wrote commentaries on a number of the books of the New Testament, uh, says in his commentary on John, he says, When we are tempted to think of our dignity, our prestige, our place, our rights, let us see again the picture of the Son of God girt with a towel and kneeling at his disciples' feet. So, what motivates the servant heart? It's love love for God and love for people. By the power of the indwelling spirit that we have in us as the redeemed of Christ, we have the ability to love others as Jesus loved us. He loves us in spite of what we are and who we are. In the latter part of John 13, verses 34 and 35, Jesus said, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this will all people know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. So what does this look like? Well, we know what it doesn't look like. James says in James two, fifteen through sixteen says, If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? First John three, seventeen through eighteen says, But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but indeed and in truth. Our new life in Christ brings with it a new mindset. Let's look again at Philippians 2, 3 through 5. It says, do nothing from rivalry or conceit. Rivalry, trying to gain the advantage, trying to be first, being against someone else, competing with somebody else for something, whether it's the promotion the salary increase, whatever it is, the, the, the best job, who knows. But we're not to do things from rivalry, and we're not to do things from conceit, which is self-promotion. I'm better than somebody else. I deserve this more than they do, okay? Those things have no place in the life of the believer. And yet, I'm afraid we're all guilty of it. It says in humility, humility, not a real popular word in 21st century America. In humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, this new mindset, okay? The mindset not of the world, but of Christ. There's an amazing statement in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 28. it's, it's something, I don't know how often we, we read this verse, but uh, uh, it's just amazing. Uh, this is how love plays out, okay, in this new mindset. Paul says, let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands. So that, why? So he can buy new clothes and amass the world's goods? No. He says, but rather, so that he will have something to give to share with anyone in need. In other words, let's read it again. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he will have something to share with anyone in need. That's why we work, okay? We have to provide for our own needs, so sure. There's nothing wrong with us having the world's goods. But the question is, are we concerned with sharing with people in need? We are all in this room. We may have different standards. We may have different salaries and income levels, and we may have different... Uh, types of houses that we live in, and different kinds of jobs, and some pay more than others. And you know, uh, some of us may be pretty well off, and others may not be by, by uh, the standards of this country. But uh, we are all wealthy by the world's standards. The question is, uh, what do we do with our money? Do we uh, obligate ourselves to the to the point of uh, our our full income? to be able to buy a house and to have a car and to provide for food and clothing and so forth and vacations and extras, swimming pool, you know, extra cars, uh, whatever. And then we don't have anything left over uh, if there's a need that arises. We're strapped, okay? We've, we've exhausted our resources providing for our own needs and wants. Okay This is not the biblical model. Uh, when this was written, these people had very little. We're thinking about a thief that steals, and then he gets a job working with his hands making maybe a denarius a day, OK, which would buy a loaf of bread? And <clears throat> So we're talking about people that lived in poverty. And you know, I came under great conviction preparing this message. I really did. Uh, put up slide five, please. This is uh, Fuller, again. He writes, no Christian, not even an apostle, can give away his or her responsibility for the poor and the needy, the deprived and the dispossessed. And all these, these ministries of mercy are to be primarily directed towards the fellowship of the saints, that is the believers in Christ. We're also to minister to our neighbors who are not just in the fellowship, not yet in the fellowship. Galatians 6.10 says, so then as we have opportunity, let us good to do good to everyone, especially to those who are of the household of faith. Uh, regarding the command in the Bible to love our neighbors as ourselves, you know Jesus said the first the great commandment, love God and then love your neighbor as yourself. And uh, Uh, So a lawyer asked Jesus, what does that mean, Jesus? Who's my neighbor? And Jesus told the parable of the Good Samaritan in Luke 10, 25. A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and robbers attacked him, beat him up, left him half dead, took everything he had. Uh, Three people came by. One was a Levite, one was a priest, and one was a Samaritan. The Levite and the priest just kept on going. They looked at him and kept going. The Samaritan, a person who the man laying there beaten up on the ground would probably have despised because Jews and Samaritans did not like each other. In fact, Jews considered Samaritans unclean. He took this man, spent his own resources providing care for this man and bringing him back to health. So Jesus said, which one was the neighbor? And the lawyer said, the one who showed him mercy. Uh, Excuse me. When we love our neighbors with ministries of mercy, that could be the means by which they open their hearts to the gospel and are brought in, brought to faith in Christ. So we have considered the reality of the call for all believers to perform ministries of mercy. And now uh, we'll finally talk about deacons. The Bible clearly teaches that certain people, properly selected and appointed by the church, have a special responsibility for the administration of the mercy ministries. Uh, As we saw, this was first accomplished uh, in the early church in Jerusalem when the seven men were selected. Uh, Paul also refers to uh, deacons in uh, the salutation to the Philippian church and in Timothy. This office continued to exist into the second and third centuries and uh, became a permanent office up until today, when it still is. So what are the qualifications for a deacon? Who are deacons? In Acts 6, uh, they they were to be men of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom. In chapter three, Paul gave a much more extensive list of what the qualifications would be. Uh, Chapter three of the first letter of Timothy. So turn to 1 Timothy chapter three, Verses eight through twelve is what we're going to be looking at. First Timothy, Chapter Three, I'm going to, have to go find that one. Okay, Paul is just. In the previous verses, he listed the qualifications for the elder or the overseer. And now he gets to deacons. So in verse 8, it says, Deacons, likewise, must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience, and let them also be tested first. Then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Their wives likewise must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their own households well. Okay, so those are the qualifications. And I'm just gonna go through those briefly. Uh, I'll I'll show you in a minute where you can get more information about that. Okay, so uh, deacons are to be dignified. This just means they're to be honorable, okay? They're to have good reputations. Uh, <clears throat> they're not to be double-tongued; they don't speak out of the both sides of their mouths, and their tongues are under control. Uh, in James chapter two, it talks about the tongue—the tongue being a fire—and the tongue is capable of great evil. And uh, so we can we can do a lot of damage with our mouths. And deacons, because they are involved in the mercy ministries and maybe helping someone in need, they may have some pretty sensitive information about an individual, about their household, about their income, and so forth, and what's going on with their life, their circumstances. They have to be careful with that information. They have to be confi- hold it in confidence. Uh, they can't share it inappropriately, okay? So the deacon has to have control of his tongue, okay? Uh, He can't be addicted to much wine. He's not to be addicted to much wine. Not controlled by the desire for it, okay? Or for any substance for that matter. He's not greedy for dishonest gain, so he exhibits honesty and integrity in his financial matters. He's not controlled by the desire to amass riches, to make a lot of money. For some people, making a lot of money is a big goal and they will sacrifice a lot to get there but that is not the kind of person that is to be a deacon. Okay? Uh, they're to be tested first. Oh, uh, they're, so, they're to hold the, to the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. The mystery of the faith, uh, you know, I was wondering what that was. I, I looked around. Really, it's, it's the gospel. It's the gospel of Christ, the mystery of the faith, that we are saved by grace. So I would say that in here you want to be sure that the person who is a deacon holds the proper view of who Christ is the, whole, the proper view of scripture the proper view of, of what it means to be a Christian okay and then uh, they have a clear conscience they're not beset with uh, besetting sin that keeps them beat down okay they're to be tested this is not a multiple choice quiz or something like that but it's a, it's, they're to be observed you watch them You talk to them, you get to know them. You find out what's going on in their family. You you find out what they believe. You watch them for a while. You see how they behave, how they conduct themselves before you say, this person can be a deacon, okay? Uh, They're to be the husband of one wife. There's been a lot of uh, discussion, different ideas about what that means, but uh, primarily it means they hold to the moral standards of Christian marriage and sexual conduct, which, by the way, ran pretty much 180 degrees out from what the Romans did, okay? Uh, marriage and sexual conduct in the Roman Empire was, uh, was far different from Christianity. Uh, <clears throat> they are to manage their children and their households well, something that could be observed, okay? The qualifications for the deacon's wife are given in verse 11. They too are to be dignified like their husbands, honorable, and not slanderers. This is parallel to the deacon not being double-tongued. The deacon's wife is gonna be privy to some of the same privileged information that the deacon is, has access to about people that are being helped. And so she is not to use that inappropriately to harm or damage the person. They're to be sober-minded and faithful in all things. This is a tough list, okay? And nobody does it perfectly, but it has to be something that characterizes people, okay? I strongly recommend, uh, you can put up slide seven. Did we miss slide six? Yeah, we got slide six, okay? Put up slide seven. If you want more information, uh, ben preached a couple of really good sermons uh, uh, on the occasion of deacon appointment uh, and on two different Sundays. The, the, the latest two in the archive on the website, if you go to the uh, audio, uh, audio ob, uh, archive, is deaconing, dated uh, January 22, 2012, and deacon appointment, dated January 31, 2016. Uh, there's a much uh, more extensive treatment of the what it takes to be, what the qualifications of a deacon mean in those two sermons, and so I'd recommend that you listen to them. So what does a deacon do? Fuller sums it up by saying that the deacon's task is to help people with various kinds of needs and to relieve the elders of these and other tasks that detract from their concentration on prayer and ministry of the word. So the specific duties of a deacon are gonna vary, and Fuller says they vary based upon the nature of the neighborhood. What are the needs? Who are you ministering to? What's the situation, okay? Crosspoint Fellowship currently has 26 deacons. We minister in a wide variety of areas, and I'm gonna read those areas for you. They're not gonna be up here on a slide. There's a lot of them. Uh, but we have these areas uh, of ministry where, where we work, okay? Baptism, benevolence, children's ministry, uh, care of the elderly and infirm and other members, event preparation, facilities, finance, hospitality, Lord's Supper, media, missions, offering, parking, security, technology, web development, worship, young adult ministry, youth ministry, Sunday morning coordination, and deacon administration. That's a lot. Lots lot of things there, okay? But these aren't stovepipes. They're not hard and fast boundaries that can't be crossed. Uh, deacons have a lot of flexibility here and we will move around among different ministries uh, as the need arises and at the same time we need to get the entire congregation involved in these ministries these aren't just 26 men doing everything okay we involve you and because remember we all have that responsibility We, we, as deacons, are to keep our eyes and ears open to needs, and not only to the local body, but we also need to keep our uh, eyes and ears open to the bigger picture, the worldwide church. Michael Horton wrote in Mercy Ministry and Social Justice that Paul, as an extension of his ministry of proclaiming the gospel, was particularly focused on collecting resources for the very from the various local churches for relief of the saints in Jerusalem and the specific references there are 1 Corinthians 16, 1-4, Romans 15, 14-33, and 2 Corinthians 8, 1-9, 14. Paul was exhorting these churches to give money for the relief of the saints in Jerusalem. What was going on in Jerusalem? Okay. Well, Jerusalem was the seat of Judaism. Okay. Jerusalem was where Jesus was crucified. He was tried and crucified there. Okay. He was crucified for what the Pharisees and Sadducees claimed was blasphemy. And so his followers were considered to be heretics. They were hounded by the Jews. They were persecuted by the Jews. Uh, most of the Christians in Jerusalem had probably lost almost everything they had. They lost their jobs, their property, uh, pretty much everything. Some of them had lost their lives. Okay? Some, some of them had been martyred, and they were in deep poverty. They were in deep poverty. So Paul was collecting and delivering this offering to to relieve their suffering. And uh, so many churches throughout the known world participated in this ministry of mercy. And some of these churches were really not a whole lot better off than the people in Jerusalem were. They were poor too. But Paul talked about how they gave abundantly out of their poverty. And uh, so, you know, I I just got convicted reading about that, guys. So I want to close talking about the deacons of Cross Point. I want to talk to you guys, to myself, okay? We've come a long way in the last few years in our ministry to the local body of Christ. But we must not slow down, and we must not slack off, okay? The thing we cannot afford to do is to pat ourselves on the back and talk about what a good job we're doing, okay? We are never finished. There continue to be more ways in which we can minister. Uh, as one of the deacons here at Crosspoint, I can testify to the great blessing and joy that I have received through performing Ministry of Mercy and other ministries. Okay, This work can be very hard at times, and it can take a significant toll on your time and on your resources. And I have to confess that as Scott's message uh, was so apt for last week, and Scott preached about uh, the verses from Psalm 119, there's times when I just don't want to do it. I have to confess that. There's times when I'm tired. There's times when I've got other things I'd rather do. Okay? Now, there's always gonna be legitimate reasons why maybe I can't minister in a particular uh, instance at a particular time, but that's why there's 26 of us, okay? So we have to rely on each other uh, in, in some cases, but a lot of times uh, you know it, it, it can be very tempting to just say I'd rather not do this right now. I don't feel like it. I'm tired. Uh, I was looking forward to getting some time off today. I was looking forward to enjoying sitting down and watching some football maybe or something and then I get this this phone call. Uh, you know, uh, when I find myself in one of these kind of funks like this, it's imperative that I repent. I have to pray with the psalmist. Incline my heart to your testimonies and not to selfish gain. Turn my eyes from looking at worthless things and give me life in your ways. Above all, guys, we must remember and follow the example of our Lord and Savior, who was the Alpha Deacon, who said, For even the Son of Man came not to be deacon to, but to deacon, and to give his life a ransom for many. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, your word speaks truth to us, and it tells us of the way we are to be, the way we are to live as your people. And Lord, it's so easy for us, as, uh, as Paul said, don't be conformed to this world. And Lord, that is a constant battle for us, we have to confess. The world is pressing in on us all the time. And Lord, we have to stay in the word, we have to stay close to you we have to constantly examine our motives we have to constantly examine our priorities to make sure Lord that uh, we aren't letting the world press us into its mold so father I pray that we could go out this week and we could think about our service how we minister to others how we perform the ministry of mercy as individual Christians and, Lord, as, uh, as deacons here at Crosspoint, I pray that we would uh, be constantly aware of our tremendous responsibility, Lord, but also the tremendous privilege that it is. And that, that uh, we would follow the example and, and, uh, of our Alpha Deacon, Jesus. And that we would rest in him and keep our eyes focused on him. I just ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.